three. As we work our way through the Bible, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, the the Church of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Isn't that what it says in your Bible? I have the new American version. (laughs) You know, there's a Bible version called the American Standard Version. We had, we're so American, we had to make our own Bible. Uh, here we go. To the angel of the church of Philadelphia, or brotherly love, write, these things says he who is holy, he is true. He who has the key of David and who opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one opens. I know your works. See, I have set before you an open door, and no one can shut it, for you have a little strength, and have kept my word, and have not denied my name. Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet, and to know that I have loved you. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you just bless our time. We pray for Pastor Cokes and his church up in Canada. We pray, Lord, the insanity of that nation and of that government would stop. They too have a First Amendment, the right to religion, the right to assemble, but it is being trampled upon by a tyrannical government. Lord, that you would strengthen the members of that church that you would send your Holy Spirit, Lord, to the rest of the churches to stand, Lord, with them. And so, Father, that you would be with us today and encourage and strengthen our hearts in the days in which we live in. We thank you for those serving, and we thank you, Lord, for this message over the Internet. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said, and I am not afraid. Just hear that. I'm not afraid, and neither should you. I know where I'm going. Do you? And if you don't, then you're afraid. What does that have to do today? Nothing. <laughs> and to the angel of the church of Philadelphia write. So we are in the midst of our seven letters to the seven churches. We are in the book of Revelation, not Revelations. Stop saying that. Repent. But it, there is the key to this book. Amen. Is there not? What is the key verse? (laughs) Revelation chapter 1, verse 19. Write the things which you've seen. We've already done that. The things which are, that's now. The seven letters of the seven churches. And the things which will take place after this. That's what will happen when we get to chapter 4. Inside of the seven letters to the seven churches is four ways that we are applying that, right? Number one, real church in 95 AD. We're going to see that that the Philadelphian church is the youngest of these seven churches, that there is a church history, and that is what we're going to mainly focus on today. Oh, we'll apply that there are churches today that are the Church of Philadelphia and individuals. Just so you know, this is a key for the rest of the day. You want to be this church individually, and you want to be attending this church. So if you're listening online or on the radio, find this church, and we will describe it to you today. But inside of these seven letters, right, we are applying it with the four C's, how Jesus describes. He always gives a praise 
or a recognition of what they are doing, a condemnation. Not today, not in Philadelphia. There's also always a counsel, a guidance, and advice so that they would have a direction so that the promise that is given by Jesus at the end would be received. So that is where we are. <laughs> we have gone through a lot of these churches. A lot of church history will bring that up today. It's important of where we are. And so verse 7, And to the angel of the church of Philadelphia write, These things says he who is holy and he who is true and he who has the key of David who opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one opens. The city of Philadelphia, so let's talk about number one in our list of four things, is a real church in 95 AD that uh, John the Revelator is writing from Patmos. It was a city that is the newest of the seven. We're going to see the year it was built. Uh, But it was located in Lydia, the province of Lydia, about 28 miles southeast of Sardis that we saw last week. And it was named after the king of Pergamum. And so you can see where Philadelphia is. And then uh, the next time we're together, we will see Laodicea, Lord willing. But it was named after the king of Pergamum, and his name was Philadelphus. And so he built this city for his brother because he loved his brother, hence the name of the city, Brotherly Love. I loved how Joe Fo said it because he's from Calvary Chapel, Philadelphia. He said, it's the city of brotherly love, not the brotherly shove. <laughs> You're from Philly, you kind of know that. Again, Philadelphia had a long history and several times was completely destroyed by earthquakes. Sounds like it was in California. The most recent rebuilding was in A.D. 17. Now, the chief crop agriculture in this region was grapes. And so you can only imagine what the the great god that they worshipped. It was Dionysus, or the Roman god Bacchus. So wine and alcohol was what they worshipped. (laughs) We'll get back to that at the end of the message. And Philadelphia was situated in a strategic place on the main route of the imperial post, the post office of Rome. It was the headquarters of that. And so in the region, they were perfectly situated to be what we will learn today, the missionary city. That's why Jesus calls them the missionary city. They know what these words of Christ mean to them. It was also known as the little Athens because of the amount of temples inside of the city. So the church certainly was located in an interesting city. Uh, The church was located in a city that was all drunked up and all idolatrous worship. Now, we've got no concept of that in the U.S., so let's move on. It is interesting where this church lines up in church history. And for our purposes, if you're taking note, this is where we start this section. Number two in church history, this is from A.D. 1750 or some 1730, on up until the rapture of the church. We will see that this church does not go through the tribulation, that it is raptured out. That is not today's message. 
That is next week's message, Lord willing. But if you're taking note, it is known as the modern evangelical, evangelistic, missionary church. It is the church that we know. It is the modern church that we know. And we're going to see that it is interesting that for the last 1,700 years of church history, for the most part, the church was not operating in the way that the church of Philadelphia was operating, which I find quite fascinating. And again, because we are not taught history inside of the church, and because personally Christians, uh, and I just encourage you, read biographies. Read about people who have come before. We're going to read about a man today. I've, I've talked about not only uh, Martin Luther, but uh, uh, William Wilberforce, uh, Bonhoeffer. You've got D.L. Moody and Charles Spurgeon. You've got all of these people. They have a wealth of information that we can learn from. I'll tell you, when I finished Amazing Grace, uh, that's the biography about William Wilberforce, it really was good for me as a pastor and teacher to know because the church has not been operating like we think it operates today. Maybe you think that this is kind of how church has always been done, but it has not. In fact, this church sets in motion something that will change the landscape of churches. You need to understand what the church looked like. And coming out of the dead church of last week, the denominational church. Remember, we saw that Martin Luther had started the Reformation. He protested, and so we are Protestants coming out of the Catholic Church. Martin Luther talking about the indulgences, the abuses inside of the church. We talked about how there was one choice, which really isn't a choice, is it? You just got, hey, let's go to church. Great, where, where do you want to go? What do you mean, where do we want to go? There's one. And then Martin Luther started, and now we have a second choice. But from Martin Luther and from that time, from 1500 on to this church in church history, we get every form and flavor that is out there, all the denominations that we know today. And in knowing that we have all of those denominations, they still fall under the category of the dead church. You see, in, the, in these days, from 1500 all the way up, you still have this idea of a class system. Now, in our United States, we still have a form of that. We have, as we're learning very quickly in the United States of America, we have politicians who make dictates that they don't follow themselves but want us to follow them. And so we have different classes. But this nation has always had poor and has always had different classes. The rest of the world has always had that. You know, guys, we're Americans. We're going to get into that today. This study is really an American study. And it's amazing what God has done in this nation with a little strength. But the rest of the world has always known that there are haves and have-nots. And there have been poor people that didn't think that they or that God would love them like the aristocrats. They thought and taught that if you were not wealthy, God didn't love you. Can you imagine that? And, that, and yet we're going to see one man 
blow open this whole idea of class structure uh, about aristocracy, the elites, poor and rich, and he is going to blow the whole system of church wide open. Not only in the Roman Catholic Church, but also in the Protestant movement and all of the Protestant churches at that time. Is that a good intro to, well, we're just going to keep going. Listen, because we're Americans, and I was going to say American, because there is no A, we're American, this particular church time in history is important to us. One may think that the American spirit has always been there, to be free and to challenge authority and have religious freedoms. But that was not always the case. How many of you, let me, I I ask this every week, but let me ask a true question. How many of you actually enjoy what we have been doing through learning history? Okay, the rest of you are just sinning. (laughs) And knock it off, repent. Now, how many of you actually know American history? Ah, do you see the, and and I don't mean that in a wrong way because we don't teach actual American history in the United States of America. We don't know. So we always think that we have this can-do spirit as American, this Texan spirit, this go-west spirit, this conquer spirit. That's not the America that we know of in the time that we're about to talk about. Listen, we were citizens of the crown. We were (laughs) colonists. We weren't freedom fighters. You know, you look at Thomas Jefferson and Washington and uh, Benjamin Franklin, and you think these guys were, they're just ready for a fight. We're going to take it to King George. It, it didn't happen that way. The revolution gender, like, uh, what would you like to do today, honey? I'd like to start a revolution. What about you? Great. Let me call George. We'll start the revolution. It didn't happen that way. And I, I, by the end of the study, I want you to do an honest You know, in your own mind, like, I have never heard that about American history before. And the way that we got to 1776 is because one British guy came over in 1739. His name is George Whitfield. And the help of the Wesleyan brothers, but they are not the key to it because they fall into a a denomination, but it is a man different. So in the 1700s, the thought that all men are created equal was as far away as the moon in thought. Now think of that. It's in our own document that all men are created equal. We didn't think that way. We didn't think that way for decades until until this man, George Whitfield, came on the stage. Again, we always think that we had this American spirit, this freedom spirit. No, we were servants of the crown. We were subjects to the crown. We were colonists. We weren't freedom fighters. If you were poor, you usually stayed that way. 
And if you were in one of the social statuses or social levels, you rarely moved up. Anybody know anything about India? That they have this caste system and we think, oh, they're just so backwards, that India. That is how the world has operated since Rome. Since Rome. It had never changed until America. That's how people were thought, were not only thought, but taught. If you were born into that level, your parents said, you can't marry into that level or you can't go into the, because you could never leave your social status of where you were until one man. We'll get to the one man. Hold on. So this spirit, this American spirit, this American thought did not start until the late 1700s, until a man, again, named George Whitfield from England crossed the pond. By the way, he was kicked out of the churches in England. They hated this guy. He is the first, as we will see, to start open-air preaching. So the Church of England banned him from preaching, and so he decided, well, I'll take it outside. He was getting uh, crowds from 10 to 20, and then when he gets to the United States, 30 to 40 to 50,000. Now, I want you to hear that for a minute. When was the last, what was, uh, who was the last person on earth to get crowds like that? Oh, no. That's after. Who got, well, you guys are jumping the gun. That's in my notes, but what are you doing? Did you read them? Billy comes later. Who before this had crowds that size? Jesus. You need to hear this. Jesus had crowds from 10 to 20 to 30,000. From Jesus to George Whitfield, the earth had never seen anything like it. That is 1,700 years of inactivity in the church. Now, now do you understand what we're about to do? And so one man starts just, and we're going to talk about his preaching. But it was one man, and by the way, he's kind of funny looking, uh, Google him. He got like that powdered wig on from the era and that collar, and he did looks funny. And look, he didn't have skinny jeans. He didn't look good, and yet he drew 20, 30,000 people that Benjamin Franklin, a young Benjamin Franklin, he was a scientist. He wanted to prove whether or not these numbers were accurate, and he walked around in the square of Philadelphia while Whitfield preached, and he measured the number of people, and he himself was blown away. Now, we know that Benjamin Franklin never really became a strong believer that you and I know, but he printed every one of George Whitfield's sermons on the front page of his newspaper. He became a lifelong friend of George Whitfield. So George Whitfield came to America bringing a different type of message. For one thing, the idea is that everyone would have a direct relationship with God and that all were equal before God led to the idea that the earthly authorities could be judged and should be judged. If God was the ultimate judge above all other judges, then surely one person could, could consider whether those in authority over them exercised their authority in accordance to God's principle. 
I know that was a long uh, paragraph. Did, did you get the gist of it? He was teaching that if God is the ultimate authority, then we should, by God's word, be able to judge human authority. Boom! That's a neutron bomb. Everyone always thought, well, like Corona, the government's always right. Well, George Whitfield started to set in motion the idea that if everyone is equal, did you hear that? Because for 1,700 years, it had never been taught that everybody was equal in the sight of God and that we're going to see that you can make your own decision. You didn't need a priest. You didn't need a rabbi. You didn't need a reverend. You could go to God directly. Now, you and I, we hear that and we go, of course. That is not how the world thought, and that is not how 1,700 years of church history thought. Now, are we seeing who this guy is? Let's continue, because he's, I mean, it's, it's amazing what this one, it's amazing that he survived and that he wasn't assassinated or canceled by Facebook. And what I thought interesting about George Whitfield is he said, if God is the ultimate judge and man can judge governments by God's word and God's precept, like in Romans 13, is this government acting righteous? Or is it not? Then he taught that biblically they could be overthrown. Now, we're 1750, and here is a guy teaching the Bible, and he's starting to let everybody know in America. We're going to see how many people he preached in America, and they're going to go, huh. You ever had that after a message? Probably every week. Like, what did he say? Was that even English? huh, you ever had that real just deep, huh, like I never thought about it that way. That's what George Whitfield did for decades in America. People went, huh. Again, this was unprecedented, this development. He focused his overwhelmingly evangelical message to all denominations. In fact, he rode his horse over 3,000 miles in one journey that he came here. He came here multiple, multiple times. Can you imagine riding a horse for 3,000 miles? He did not like riding in, in carriages because he thought it too snooty. So he rode his own horse everywhere. And so Whitfield was not shy about bringing a correction uh, to false doctrine that he saw. He was able to talk about the popish, uh, tyrannical Catholic church as well as the Protestant church. He put his stamp of approval on the Stamp Act that Americans would start to break the chains of King George, and he is himself British. He showed solidarity uh, with the Americans against the British. And so Whitfield's preaching by causing people to directly look upward to God greatly tempered their fear of their worth, uh, the worldly authority and went a long way in solidifying what we t know today is the American character. 
So one guy simply preaching God's word, simply preaching out of the Bible. One guy preaching out of the Bible. To which, how many of you think that when America was started, when we think of the pilgrims, we're like, religious freedom. So that's always been here. Yes, but we've already also learned from last week what happens in denominations. And people really didn't hear the simplistic message of the gospel. And it proves it with the conversions under Whitfield. It wasn't merely that the American colonists became more religious. Therefore, Benjamin Franklin did chronicle this did happen, that when Whitfield went through an area, the morality and the sin plummeted and people flooded into churches after Whitfield. That did happen. The very message of Whitfield's preaching was in, in it of itself with the idea of that God has given liberty and freedom. Who the, who the Son sets free, he is what? 1,900 years they had not heard that. And so now people are like, wow, we can be free? We don't need a king? We don't need to be a subject? Not only from a human government, but inside of the church. You mean I don't need to go to somebody in some kind of, you know, pastoral authority or my, my denomination says, I could go directly to God? That is something that we take for granted today. That you don't need to ask me a question. You can, but you've got the Bible in your hand. The manual is right here. How many times, wives, have you told your husbands? Read the instructions. I threw that out when I opened the box. Thank God for YouTube. <laughs> Seriously, I mean, isn't it nice to watch some guy put it together? You're like, I can do that. Then you look at it and you go, I can't do that. Because his preaching led each person to see that God wished to have a direct relationship with every one of his children, no matter their social status, the church authorities were effectively cut out of the equation. Did you hear that? That Whitfield told people that God loved everybody. It didn't matter where their social status was. In fact, there was a, uh, a black man that came to him during the times that he said, he said, uh, Mr. Whitfield, I don't know if he is minister or whatever. He said, do I have a soul? Now, I just want that to sink in for a minute. Late 1700s, a black man comes to Whitfield, hears preaching. By the way, uh, I mean, he, he reached all races, all people, told women where their rightful place was in the church and in God's kingdom. Never had been done before. This is 1730 to 1750. We think, we think the church has always been equal. No. So he tells the young black, he goes, of course you have a soul, and God loves you. The guy gets saved immediately right there. The black churches start to grow from, from this point. A, uh, and a Native American at the time, 
did the same thing, showed up at one of his um, outdoor rallies, got saved, became one of the first pastors in the Indian nation, took it back to his own tribe, started to bring the gospel into those areas because the white man told them that they weren't worthy of that. Guys, we live in a time that we have no idea what time we're living in. We have no idea of our own actual history. Wouldn't you love to go, go to a government school and hear, the reason why we had independence is because of, of a British pastor named George Whitfield. You'll never hear that. But that's the truth. It's not because Washington just woke up again and called Jefferson. There was no t- phones. Don't send me any, a message. Like, let's revolt today. I want you to hear that last part. Because of his preaching led each person to see that God wished to have a direct relationship with every one of his children. They heard for the first time that God not only loved them, but wanted to have a personal relationship. And because the printing press, now Bibles can be in the hands of people. And he's directing them to read it for themselves. Again, this was something empowering of the day. If you're poor and you just heard, I mean, your whole life you've heard that your life just stinks and you can never get out of where you are and that God may not even love you because you don't have enough money to give and you just heard this guy in a weirdo wig tell you that God loves you and wants you to be in eternity with him, or you're black, or you're whatever race, it is totally changing the landscape of not only America, but eventually the world. The message introduced what we think is the free market of ideas. That people could choose for themselves a church that they thought best represented what the Bible said. They'd never heard of that before. There were many options to choose from because as Whitfield's success traveled, churches popped up right behind him. There was a void left and churches started springing up and people started to be different. No matter where one hailed from, no matter what one church someone belonged to, no matter what your birth was, no matter what your social rank was, In Whitfield's preaching, all were equal in God's sight. All are God's children. By our creator, we are endowed with inalienable rights. That didn't come from these guys thinking, what's some good stuff that we can write in here? They're remembering what George Whitfield is preaching. Specifically, Benjamin Franklin, who prints it every time he publishes George Whitfield's messages and sermons are in his newspaper. Wouldn't you love the New York Times to print this one? (laughs) Furthermore, someone who might be outwardly common could know that all God's children were the children of the sovereign God of the universe. And that they, as the Bible says, are a royal priesthood. Again, we take a lot for granted. 
but the people of this country, that this is our country, where we come from, the thoughts of liberty and of justice, truth, the American way came from a British preacher. Over the decades, the societal leveling changed the colonies and created the American people. They were, they were just colonists. They were subjects, and now they were turning into freedom fighters. Whitfield's preaching was a great societal leveler throughout the colonies, but it was a uniter as well. By the time Whitfield died in 1770, listen to this statistics. 80% of the population of the American colonies heard him preach at least one time. Can you imagine? No wonder why there is an American spirit because 80% of cross-denominational lines heard this guy say that God loves you no matter what your status is and everybody is equal in the eyes of God, be it King George or the person that is taking care of the horses at the stable. They didn't know that. And now there is this leveler by one man. Whitfield's nonstop preaching over the decades achieved the idea that one's simple faith in Jesus outweighs any denominational affiliation. Now, I personally love this about Whitfield because what he was doing was, as we'll see his last quote before he died, uh, that he, he really didn't like denominations. He didn't think that we should be gathered in these little groups. He thought that we are believers. Listen to what he says at the end, if I can find where I was. Here we go. go. So his last stop in 1769, he was preaching, and he said, Christ does not say we are an independent or a Baptist or a Presbyterian, or are you of the Church of England, man? Nor does he ask if you are a Methodist, for all of these things are our own silly invention. Who who wants to give this guy a high five in heaven? Like, what? George Whitfield, powdered wig. One guy turning a, a continent upside down. One British guy. Basically, he got kicked out of England because of what he wanted to do, which was bring a leveler. Whitfield teaches us today not to be impressed by denominational thinking or class structure or order, and that we are all guilty before God, and that God cannot love us more or less by what we do with man based rules. God does not love you any more or any less today. You see, for 1,700 years, that's what the church thought. If you do these things, God will love you. No, no, God loved you because he sent his son to die on the cross for you. He doesn't look at you and go, wow, I'm pretty impressed that you did that. I love you more 
He can't. It's impossible for God to love you more or less. He loves you. It's demonstrated upon the cross. And Whitfield told everybody, no matter where you are, no matter what color or creed, again, he brought an equal playing field to everybody. That's the simplicity of the gospel. That's what people need. They don't need more organizations. Again, with most of the time in history, God uses that one man or that one woman to change the direction not only of the church, but nations and continents. And as we will see to the gospel that we might preach to everyone and to anyone that would listen and to surrender. It is not that I bring this message to just white or to just yellow or brown or black, and I choose that. I bring the message to everybody. And listen, Jesus did that. And I'm not saying that Whitfield is Jesus, but I want you to see that you've got Jesus and Whitfield. What's in between that? 1,700 years of church, just going through the motions. We read Thyatira and Pergamos and Sardis, and now we're in Philly. By one man, it allowed men like William Wilberforce to help abolish slavery in the 1800s. William Carey to go to to India. D.L. Moody, Charles Spurgeon, Martin Lloyd-Jones, G. Campbell Morgan, David Livingston, Eric Lydell, Jim Elliott, Billy Graham, Chuck Smith, and Greg Laurie. Hundreds of other men and women that have done the work of God because of one man opened the doors that were already opened by Jesus. See, the the funny thing is when Jesus tells the Philadelphians that there's an open door, there's been an open door since day one. They just didn't walk through it. They were more worried about robes and hats and incense and statues and money and buildings than about lost souls. And just as the Jewish nation failed to bring the gospel message to the Gentiles, which they were supposed to do, so too the church has failed as well. So now let's look at the the description that Jesus gives himself here in verse 7. That was pretty good. It's only 38 minutes. That's why we're only doing three verses. Please note with me it says here, to the angel of the church of Philadelphia write these things, says he who was, number one, holy, number two, true, and the one who has the keys of David, who opens and no one shuts, and shuts, and no one opens. So we start to see the nature and the character of Jesus. And I wanted us to pause while we are going through this church history, going through these seven letters to the seven churches, before we even get to the tribulation period, before we get to the wrath of God, that we need to know who Jesus is. And I love the description. Number one, he is holy. His character, his words, his actions, his purposes are of the holy one. He is uniquely set apart from everything else and cannot be compared to him. Nothing can be compared to him. 
It's wonderful to know that somebody, and that somebody is God, is outside of this world that is tainted with sin and violence, with corruption and deception of lies. Therefore, he alone, because he is set apart and is holy, is able to step in and help and heal. You look at this world and you go, it's madness what's going on. And the sheep are going right off of the cliff. And you, it is. Thank you, Lord, that you are outside of this world and the craziness of this world, that you are set apart, and I can come to you and you alone for help. Not the CDC, not the WHO, not the federal government, not the state government, to Jesus. He and he alone is true. That means that he is genuine. He is the original, not a copy. He is the authentic God, the king of the universe. He's not a manufactured idol or some God that, well, man knows how to make so well. Again, there were hundreds of false gods in Philadelphia at the time, but Jesus could rightly claim to be the true God. He was the genuine article. You know, people, I would hope through, well, I don't know anymore. Usually people, if, if they're biblically based, could, you know, the smell test. I'm like, that doesn't smell good. That's not right. You know, the Bible tells us to be discerners. It's one of the best spiritual gifts that you could be, a discerner. To know if that guy's teaching on TV, that's bunk. God's not broke. Turn that guy off, right? That's a discerner. And that's genuine. That comes from a right relationship with Jesus, knowing his word, knowing what is a counterfeit and what is not a counterfeit. Because as we journey through Revelation, we're going to see a giant counterfeit come to the stage. I also like in the day in which we live, in which there is really no truth, that we find truth in Jesus, absolute truth. It is stunning to see how many, even in the church, don't know absolute truth. Are you ready to be blown away by a new Barna research study? Oh, man. Barna just recently gave these statistics. Are you ready for it? Now, this is evangelical. That's what we consider ourselves. These are supposed to be, for the most part, right thinking. 53% of evangelical churchgoers do not believe in absolute truth. Where is absolute truth, church? It's in the Bible. What did that survey just say? 53% of people going to church don't believe this book. That's not denominational. That's evangelical. That's what we would consider is people that got some common sense. And now we see that 53% of them don't believe in absolute truth. Thank you, communism. That is what 70 years of communism attacking the U.S. from the inside looks like. Not from the outside, from the inside. 
communism in universities, communism in the churches. Wait till we get to next week, Lord willing, and the church, well, no, that wouldn't be the following. When we get to Laodicea, we will see that the liberal church has been around since the 1920s. Communism has infiltrated the church since it left Russia under Lenin. It is not something new. And so obviously, it took that long to get 53% of evangelicals to say, nope, there's no absolute truth. That's a stunning number. We live in a world that has no idea what the truth is, and yet it continues to make up its own ideas of what's right and what's wrong. We are living in days where right is actually wrong and wrong is actually right. But Isaiah 5 says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes, you politicians, you Twitter owners, you Facebook moguls. I couldn't come up with the word there. He says, woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and prudent in their own sight. They believe their own lie. And there is a giant lie coming. It's building right now. And I've seen it in 2020. I've seen people people take their entire common sense and lay it over here and go, tell us what to do, great government. And there's a guy that's going to step up. He is going to fill a giant void. You ever lived in a time and a period where the world is leaderless? Right now. The world does not have a one leader, does it? And the United States, which used to be the cop, whether we liked it or not, we kept other nations at bay from doing really dumb things. That's out the window. So it's a weird time, isn't it, to live in a nation where this guy is about to step on the stage and everybody's going to follow him. Not us. We're going to see that next time in the rapture of the church. Lastly, in this verse, verse (laughs) 7, tells us that Jesus is the authority to open and to close. Guys, if Jesus got the keys, what do we have to worry about? And I preach to myself. What do I have to worry about if my God can kick down a door or he can open it for us? Through the ministry of this church for over 18 years, God has slammed a lot of doors, and I am very thankful. Afterwards, not during, you know how that is. You're like, God, I really want to go down this path. No, you're an idiot. I don't know how God talks to you, but he. (laughs) I'm so thankful for those times. It hurts during that time, doesn't it? Because you have this pure motive. You're like, Lord, I just want to serve you and do what's right. He goes, no. And then there are times where he's got the door open wide and we're like, and God's like, I've been opening up the door for decades for you. Why don't you walk through? Funny how that is, isn't it? He says, I know your works in verse 8. 
Remember, Jesus knows everything we do, right or wrong. For him, not for us. He could care less if it's for us. He says, I know your works. I've set an open door. There he did it. By the way, that, that phrase, open door, means it's always been open, continues to stay open, which means it's been open since 33 AD, since Jesus left planet Earth. It's never, never shut. And the idea is to bring this message to the gospel. Paul talks about that. There was an open door set before us, and they walked right through it. Paul said closed doors as well. But he said, I set an open door before you that no one can shut it, for you have a little strength. You have kept my word and not denied my name. So, the open door, again, speaks of opportunities of ministry. Christ is the Lord of the hardest and the head of the church. And he, and he alone determines where his people should go and why they should go that way. He gave the opportunity for the Philadelphian church to spread the gospel. Note with me, it says that you have a little strength. Now, don't get bummed that you have a little strength. Be happy that you have strength at all. I'm just excited that I'm in the game. You need to get to that place. I'm just excited, Lord, whatever. Someone, whatever. I'm just excited that I have something. It does not imply weakness. That's how we think as humans. Again, Jesus called himself meek, but meekness is not weakness. It is strength under control. <laughs> Isn't that nice? They were weak enough to be strong. Does that, is that sell a book? Let me tell you. Let me give you seven keys. How to be weak, and then you'll be strong. That doesn't sell. Jesus tells us, it is by his power and his might. When we are weak, he is strong. Can I tell you, just a funny thing that happens to me all the time as a pastor. Um, if I'm traveling or I'm doing something or like in the last six weeks been, been up at Arrowhead, uh, Arrowwood nonstop, traveling back and forth, and I get tired and I come up here and I teach, and although I had plenty of rest last night, that my wife will often tell me, like, because I just feel like, oh, that message just stunk. I didn't really. He, she goes, that was the best thing I ever heard. Oh, stop shaking your head. You know that, right? When somebody is just wholly dependent upon the, but when I think to myself, man, I knocked it out of the park. No one says, good job, Pastor. <laughs> that message really spoke to me. Never hear that. That's the point. The point is you have a pastor who knows his limitations. It is all, before I walk out of you know I have a ritual. When I when I my hand hits that door before I come out Lord use this donkey again. Once again, let it be you and not of me. Let your words come forth. Let you minister. I don't want to do it. Now, listen, he allows me in my character and the way that I present it to keep you engaged. That's, that's what I bring to the table. Not much. But I allow God's word then to just come out. Have you ever noticed that 99.9% uh, .9 of the messages here at Calvary Chapel Myrtle Beach are not topical messages? Because it's not about how many eloquent words. See? Eloquent. 
words I can string together and make something sound good. No, we just take you through the Bible, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. So we have just a little strength. Also, we have kept his word. The church in Philadelphia was a faithful church in serving God in his word. The thing about Calvary Chapel and Calvary Chapel Myrtle Beach and Calvary Chapel as a whole as a movement is that we are set apart because for the most part, we place the emphasis on God's word. All 66 books, we teach you all the Bible. This is our fourth time through the Bible in 18 years. I love when someone will come from a different church and they're like, uh, our pastor, does, we haven't even gone through a book. That's the dead system. That's religion. That's church. Now, please don't send me a message and say topical messages are not effective. They're not. No, they are, but not as a growth method. Do you understand that? I've given topical messages at other churches before. In fact, I'm going to give a message coming up, but it's tied to the scripture. The three reasons why we believe in a pre-tribulation rapture from the Old Testament. I have it. It's in my iPad. I travel around with it. I love to teach it. I taught it in England when I was there. They had never heard that before. I love doing that. So topical messages aren't necessarily bad, but I believe you can't grow from them. You grow from getting the entire enchilada. <laughs> that was for our... So that we would get the entire picture of God. You know, a topical message is like getting a piece of the puzzle, but never really seeing the whole thing. Well, here, you can go online and hear the whole thing about God. Genesis to Revelation. And then when we're done, we'll do it again. And then we'll do it again until we hear the trumpet. He says, you also have not denied my name. I like how John Corson said, he said, it better translated, you haven't denied my deity. Now think about that just for a moment because we're running out of time. Plenty of people call on the name of Jesus, but they don't believe that he is God. Do you see the difference in this church? This church says, no, the deity is what we elevate. We elevate Jesus as the man as not only 100% man, but 100% God. So this church who has a little strength, not denied his word, and lifts up the name of Jesus and his deity. That's what set them apart. The church of Philadelphia is commended for keeping the word of God, not denying his name. Success in Christian work is not measured by any other standard of achievement. It is not rise in your position as a pastor or as we know so many denominations, you, you're only there for a couple of years till you can get to a bigger church and then to a bigger church and to a bigger church and you're always trying to rise. The thing about Calvary guys is we kind of stay at one city for the rest of, uh, the rest of our term, which could be good and bad. Right? But for the most part, we stay put because we believe that God called us to an area and we minister to that area. You know what's interesting about the longevity of a pastor is that you baptize uh, people when they're, you know, they're seven, eight years old, and then eventually you see them grow up, and then you marry them in front of you, and then you 
uh, dedicate their kid in front. I mean, it's just like this cycle that goes on, and you're involved with people's lives for decades. And I love that about our church, that we are involved in your life. We have watched your kids grow up. We've seen you vacation here for 15 years and then finally moved. <laughs> we, I love that. I love that. Oh, I may not know you. By the way, this is, if I don't re- remember your name, don't get offended. Just know that there are so many people that come in and out and vacationing, and you all look alike anyway. You have to remember one name. I have to remember that. Let me read to you lastly from uh, Barnhouse in his commentary. He said, it's not the number of buildings which have been built through a man's ministry. It's not the crowds that flock to listen to a human voice. All those things are frequently used as yardsticks of success but they are earthly and not heavenly measured. Kind of sums up what Whitfield used to say. Denominations are just silly. And then lastly here, uh, (laughs) verse 9. Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and they are not, but lie. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet and to know that I have loved you. Again, there was oppression going on in this city. Jews who were calling themselves Jews, but really weren't Jews, um, and they were persecuting them. But notice it says the synagogue of Satan. But the word synagogue just means a place of meeting. So there is a lot of place of meeting in the world that is evil. We can apply it to the Jews, but it's not the Jewish nation as a whole. It was simply right here in Philadelphia. But I, uh, I expand the thought by saying that there is an, a time in which we are living in an opposition to the truth of the church that we have never seen the likes of before, let alone churches just going along with the plan. No one has seen that before. Like they would obey the government over God's word, over your Savior. But notice with me, it says, I will make those who are the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not. I pose to you, not not being so heretical here, or heretical at all, that there are Christians who say that they are Christians and are a lie and are persecuting us today because we are open, because we declare God's word. Because, do you know what they call Calvary Chapel? You guys worship the Bible. That's inside of the church says that about us. You are, you're in a cult. Uh, In Austria, you would be in a cult today. The government of Austria considers Calvary Chapel a cult. Yes. (laughs) We finally arrived. Isn't that crazy to think of a government thinks that what we're doing here, reading God's word each week, going through the Bible, that we're a cult? I post to you that in 2021, there are a lot of Christians who are calling themselves Christians, but are not. And Barna is proving that with 53% that are believing that there is no absolute truth. Read ahead, because we will get raptured out. And, oh, I know you're excited, but hold on, I didn't finish. This is the only church that describes the rapture out of the seven. 
So if this is the church we're going to and are a part of, what can we class deduce from that? We will be taken out of here. And next time we will lay out the argument for what we believe is biblical of the pre-tribulation rapture view. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for your mighty word. It's powerful. We thank you, Lord, for men like George Whitfield who could have stayed in his church of England, sat there and obeyed, been a good little follower of the church of England. But he listened to your word over religion and over the government. King George didn't like him. He went against his own government, got on a boat, and started to preach to our colony. And we thank you, Lord, for the ministry of George Whitfield, not a perfect man by any stretch of the means. But Lord, thank you that he brought freedom to our nation and that we declared that freedom and that we stand here with the First Amendment to declare that we have the right to assemble. We have the right given to us by God, the freedom of religion, the freedom to assemble, the freedom to have grievances against our government, the freedom against unlawful search and seizure, the freedom to not have police walk through our door and shut us down. Again, Lord, we pray for our brothers and sisters around this world. We pray for the churches in Canada and in Germany and Italy and all around that are locked down. England is the worst, Lord. I pray for those pastors and churches that they would take a stand like Bonhoeffer in 1930 against a regime that was so evil. So, Lord, thank you for our day. (laughs) Thank you for your word. We thank you for those who are like-minded. And we are so excited to get out of here. But we thank you for our country that you gave us. And, Lord, that we would never take America for granted. In Jesus' name, amen.